and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the rare bill Senate Democrats and Republicans agree on, which is expected to pass handily on Tuesday, an injection of a quarter of a trillion dollars in government support for private industry to improve the U.S.'s competitive edge with China in semiconductors, artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing and other advanced technologies. Scott Kennedy, Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who has been traveling to China for 30 years and is the author of The Business of Lobbying in China, joins us. We will discuss this unusual agreement that has Republicans voting for government subsidies, spurred on by a fear that a failure to act now would leave the U.S. dependent on its biggest geopolitical rival. We will also assess how competition with China could be managed constructively without necessarily having to resort to conflict. Then we'll go to Mexico City for the results of congressional elections over the weekend, the culmination of a campaign season that has seen 96 politicians and candidates assassinated following a change in strategy by President López Obrador, who came to power promising hugs, not gunshots. Joining us to discuss the results and Vice President Harris's upcoming meeting with López Obrador on Tuesday is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and the president of the Association for Borderland Studies and the author of Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico. Then finally, we'll examine the incendiary and volatile politics in Israel as Prime Minister Netanyahu borrows from Trump, accusing the opposition government about to replace him of fraud as Shin Bet, Israel's FBI, issues a rare warning that mob violence incited by Netanyahu could result in a January 6th type of lethal uprising. Gershom Gorenberg, an historian and journalist who is a columnist at the Washington Post and a senior correspondent with the American Prospect and author of Shalom, Friend, The Life and Legacy of Yitzhak Rabin, joins us to discuss Netanyahu's history of using incitement for political gain. And joining us now is Scott Kennedy, a senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading authority on China's economic policy and its global economic relations. He has been traveling to China for almost 30 years, and his books include The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, Perfecting China, Inc., China's 13th Five-Year Plan, and The Business of Lobbying in China. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Kennedy. Thanks so much, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, on Tuesday, the Senate is expected to vote and pass a rare bipartisan uh, bill which will inject about a quarter of a trillion dollars in government support for private industry to improve the U.S.'s competitive edge with China in semiconductors, artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, and other advanced technology. So that in itself is pretty unusual, isn't it? I mean, the Republicans are normally dead against government subsidies, but why are they all joining hands with the Democrats on this one? Um, it's an interesting uh, mix uh, that gets us to this combination because you could see uh, re there are Republicans or fiscal conservatives. There are 
also Democrats who are against corporate welfare, yet Democrats and Republicans have found common ground on China because China is now viewed, most importantly, as a national security challenge to the United States and as an alternative ideological competitor uh, with an authoritarian state capitalist system that's challenging uh, the U.S.'s own system and the liberal international order on which our success has been built. That trumps the worries of, of, of spending too much or giving too much money uh, to industry. So given that this is in response to fears about China and fears mostly of all of that the United States could become dependent upon China, and of course we recall when the pandemic struck, the U.S. had no you know, PPE and masks and N95s, etc., and they had to turn to the Chinese, and there's quite a lot of derisive comments in the Chinese press about the poor Americans that were helping out, etc. So, is this why it's happening, this fear that uh, the U.S. could be dependent on on its chief geopolitical rival? I, I think that is part of what got the discussion going last year on, on a lot of this. The, the pandemic was a, really a wake-up call for a variety of Americans and Republicans and Democrats and a lot of folks inside the Trump administration. The Trump administration actually had been divided on what their goals were. The pandemic kind of brought everybody together. I think, though, what we're seeing is, is less a, a, a view that this bill is a vehicle to decouple with China than that the U.S. needs to engage in its own effort of self-strengthening. And so more R&D at home, more manufacturing, uh, more diversified supply chains, but not outright decoupling from China, even in the sectors that you mentioned in health care. Uh, although we're dependent on China for certain parts of healthcare, including uh, PPE, there's others where China is less important. And what we have is a global supply chain issue. And actually, because of China's manufacturing prowess, in many areas, it will be part of a supply chain resiliency solution. So I do think that the fears about China are motivating a lot of this. But the outcome, I think, of this legislation, if it's implemented appropriately over a long time, is a more resilient American economy, not one that is just decoupled from China. And again, I'm speaking with Scott Kennedy, who's a senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading authority on China's economic policy and its global economic relations. He has been traveling to China for more than 30 years, and his books include The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, Perfecting China, Inc., China's 13th Five-Year Plan, and The Business of Lobbying in China. But uh, you've been arguing, Scott, that the U.S. should see the competition uh, with China managed constructively without necessarily having to resort to conflict. Now, Xi Jinping seems to have changed his tune a little away from the wolf-warrior diplomacy of, you know, talking about the Australians as, as being a piece of gum stuck on the sole of your shoe to uh, talking about projecting love around the world. So what's happening with Xi Jinping? Yeah. I don't think that Xi Jinping's comments in the last few days of following a Politburo study session uh, suggesting that China sort of try and improve its global image is, is about China changing fundamental course. The Chinese themselves view the, 
uh, that they are in a strategic competition with the United States, that the U.S. is not going to accept a communist state capitalist China as an equal, uh, and that the U.S. Is, is going to try to squeeze them. And as a result, uh, they are engaged in their own campaign for technological uh, self-reliance for proving that the Chinese system can deliver better than uh, democratic market economies. And so he may be changed. I think their argument is that people don't understand China well enough. And if they did, they'd like them. And, and I don't think that's the case. And so I think that this uh, effort to polish their reputation isn't going to last very long. That said, I don't think that the appropriate U.S. response because of China's nefarious behavior and long-term plans is, is that we cut and run. We can compete and coexist with the Chinese because we have huge advantages with our own system that make this a competitive exercise that we can do very well in. And I'd be happy to talk about any of those elements with you. Well, but talk a little bit about the need to avoid a Cold War, which I take it is your position that we should have a competition with China, but it shouldn't necessarily resort to conflict. Uh, well, I don't know of many folks uh, inside the Beltway or outside the Beltway who want war with China. I certainly think we ought to do the best that we can to try and avoid uh, open military conflict, but we need to defend our allies and friends in Asia along China's periphery and the global institutions that support uh, free market democracies, and if that gets us involved in greater conflict with China, uh, then then we'll have to defend ourselves. That said, uh, there are areas, I think, w- where we should feel that because of our the strengths of our system, uh, we can compete with the Chinese uh, quite well, I think, in high tech, in the competition for talent that drives the research and innovation into high tech. The U.S. has tremendous advantages there. And so I think if we have some more confidence in our system, which I think is justified, we will be able to do quite well and avoid the most nefarious kinds of of military conflict that some are predicting are inevitable. And a lot of those predictions involve Taiwan, uh, where the Chinese have been more aggressive in confronting Taiwan with aircraft flying into Taiwanese airspace, etc. And it's not entirely clear what the United States would do if the China resorted to an invasion. So that's not in any way resolved, is it? What kind of dialogue do you think is going on? Because there have been a couple of long phone calls between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Taiwan has to be uh, one of the most worrying scenarios for possible U.S.-China conflict and open war uh, that that exists. South China Sea, a North Korea collapse crisis or a North Korea missile launch or something could, the Taiwan case seems to be more possible. But I still think the guardrails that we've put in place uh, over 50 years ago are still working. The U.S. is still uh, through military sales and interaction with Taiwan, counterbalancing China's growing military power. Others in the region, from Japan to South Korea to those in Europe, have signaled 
that not they wouldn't necessarily get involved in a military clash, but the consequences for the relationship with China would be extremely high. China would have to be betting its entire political future on the outcome of the war, and that is in doubt. I think as long as there's doubt in their minds that they are end, they and we haven't foreclosed the possibility of some type of political rapprochement between Taipei and Beijing, that still the, the, the likelihood of, of war is relatively low. And so I still think that that's possible to, to achieve diplomatically with deterrence as well. Well, let's turn to something that could really turn the U.S. relationship with China, which is pretty fraught at the moment, into a real deep freeze. And that would be the consequences of investigations that are finally happening now into the possibility that there was a, a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute for Virology that caused the coronavirus pandemic and President Biden's given the intelligence services uh, 90 days to come up with something more definitive. What happens if it is finally understood and it certainly seems likely that the cause of the coronavirus pandemic was a lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, China got really f furious with the Australians a while back for even suggesting there should be an international inquiry into the origins of COVID. And they, you know, they punished Australia with tariffs on beef and wine, etc., basically killing the, the export business in those commodities. So... What would you expect would happen to relations with China and the U.S. and China and the outside world if it were revealed that, that a lab accident is the cause of the pandemic? Um, not good for the relationship, not good for China, for sure. Um, China is putting a lot on this, that, uh, it's, that the lab is not the source of the virus, no kind of lab leak or bioweapon or, or anything like that. Uh, and uh, what we don't, of course, what we don't know is what the real answer is right now. Uh, despite uh, lots of rumors and, th and thinking, I don't think that the U.S. intelligence community has given the president anywhere near clarity on this. And I think given what happened in 2002 and three with Iraq, uh, the world deserves to have super duper clarity on this before reaching any uh, conclusions and then if it does turn out that that China, that this lab was the leak for whatever wow I, I think uh, many different options are on the table in terms of sanctions and will fundamentally affect China's relationship with with countries around the world given the extent of the pandemic uh, but we're also going to have to figure out how to end up you know, bringing the current pandemic to an end and preparing for future pandemics. And so there's uh, dealing with COVID-19 is partly about the history and the sources of, of the current pandemic. But there's so much more that we're going to need to do uh, in addition to that. Well, just in closing, it's not going to be easy to get the Chinese to cooperate. In fact, it's unlikely they will. Absolutely. This is this is not, <laughs> of course not. So the intelligence uh, that's going to have to be gathered uh, to come up with something more definitive will be uh, a, a monumental task. It's, it's, it's probably way more difficult than looking for uh, uh, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. 
Well, Scott Kennedy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been great to talk to you. Well, thanks again, Scott. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Kennedy, Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading authority on China's economic policy and its global economic relations. He's been traveling to China for almost 30 years, and his books include The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, Perfecting China, Inc., China's 13th Five-Year Plan, and The Business of Lobbying in China. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back and go to Mexico City to look into the results of the congressional elections over the weekend in an election season that's seen 96 politicians and candidates assassinated. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on U.S.-Mexican relations, organized crime, immigration, border security and human trafficking. A global fellow at the Wilson Center, she was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. The president of the Association of Borderland Studies, her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico. Welcome to Background Briefing, Guadalupe Carrera Cabrera. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Well, thank you, uh, Guadalupe. And... Vice President Harris, today, Monday, is in Guatemala. Tomorrow, Tuesday, she'll be in Mexico City meeting with AMLO, who's just suffered a blow in the midterm elections over the weekend. The full count's not in yet, but it looks like he has lost about 60 seats, so he won't have a supermajority of the 500-person Mexican Congress. So... Let's begin with that. Do you think that these elections, and obviously I want to talk about the enormous amount of violence involved in these elections with close to 100 politicians and candidates killed, but let's start with uh, AMLO's fortunes or misfortunes. How do you read the election results? Uh, yes, of course. It's a very interesting. It's a very interesting subject because the international media is seeing what happened yesterday as a big blow uh, against the the 
a presidency of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and his project of the Fourth Transformation uh, in Mexico, and he was he was uh, he he didn't he didn't express any preoccupation at all because in reality he never had the supermajority that some media are talking about. He definitely you know him and his allies. I'm not talking about the party. Yes, lost some spaces, but they kept a majority. Uh, you know enough to do what he wants to do which is to have the budget, to approve the budget. He doesn't need to, to, I mean, to generate any, any, any alliances with anybody to approve the budget because with him and his allies, uh, I mean, that, that, were, that, that were voted for the project of, of the Ford Transformation, he's going to be able to do what he wants to do, which is continue his social programs. So in that regard, and he expressed that today in the Mañanera, in the morning um, you know, press briefings that he, that he gives, gives uh, he, was, he was happy. He was, not, he was not unhappy about this. And another thing that it's 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 interesting because the media portray this as a big loss, and I am not sure about that. Uh, Morena won uh, at least ten governorships; they were not present in ten governorships. So it mean it seems that we can see it in a in a in in a different way, uh, depending on on in which side. Uh, absolutely, yeah, I think that the that the main issue where the main losses were connected to the 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 elections in Mexico City. They had, several uh, mayorships were were lost and this is where the you know the party had had bigger losses but in reality he will be able to complete his plans to achieve this for transformation maybe by the increase in social programs as he w- would like to and you know he uh, yeah the, the I mean political violence characterized a portion of that process but at the same time this is not the first time you know political violence or violence connected to politics and organized crime is not new. It has been taking place, you know, during the past uh, several years, and particularly the elections from 2018. The number of incidents that are that connect political violence with organized crime were, um, you know, were, were higher than in this election. That does not mean that Mexico is undergoing a, a very, you know, stable situation. But we need to qualify the alleged loss that Andres Manuel had. I think, I mean, what I am hearing in Mexico, I'm Mexico City right now, um, you know, connected with, with what uh, his supporters are thinking they're not sad it's just like they expected that what happened in Mexico City is that uh, in Mexico City the party had a lot of divisions within the Morena party had a lot of divisions so more than others you know uh, being disillusioned with Andres Manuel maybe it had to do with a lot of political divisions and bad selections of candidates you know some of these the the states that were not won by Morena were you know in the north for example I'm talking about the the state of of Nuevo León or the state of Chihuahua, they had always been bastions of, of the of the PRI or the or the PAN, but at the same time the selection of candidates were not very, very good. And also uh, we have to understand that you know the presence of Morena in the north had never been as it is today. So there were a lot of successes in this in this midterm elections for Andres Manuel López Obrador. And again I'm speaking with Guadalupe Correa Cabrera 
who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking, a global fellow at the Wilson Center. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons, and she's the president of the Association for Borderland Studies, and her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. So, Guadalupe, though, nevertheless, 96 politicians and candidates have been assassinated in this campaign uh, that began in September of last year, and... Also, there were some horrendous examples just south of us here in Tijuana, in Baja California, where a severed head was tossed at a polling place, etc. Is this in any way a referendum on Manuel López Obrador's different kind of approach to the war on drugs and the war on crime in Mexico? He's tried to change the approach with what he calls hugs, not gunshots, that doesn't seem to be working. So is there an attribution there to this change in not going to war against the cartels but somehow trying to improve conditions so that young Mexicans aren't forced to join these criminal gangs? Well, his approach of, um, you know, hawks not bullets uh, has not given the results that that were desired, that are desired by Andres Manuel López Obrador and in his administration. However, we need to consider the fact that during the past two administrations, the levels of violence were increasing exponentially. In the first year of Andres Manuel López Obrador, following that, that those trends, you know, we see an increase. Now we're seeing a small decrease, but I don't think that this, you know, this exactly what we're seeing right now with regards to security has solely have to do with Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's administration and his approach to to security, his strategy, security strategy. There has been like a, di- I mean, the dynamics that have taken place because of what was, uh, I mean, of the security strategy, the militarization of, of public safety in Mexico really caused this, um, you know, increase in arms access, I mean, uh, being in hands of, of cartels to fight the, the, the federal forces. So he bet that he was going, I mean, you know, not confronting directly all the cartels was going to be, you know, giving probably, you know, faster results. It has not given uh, the results that he wanted. But we have seen in the past year, I would say, a very slight increase in the number of homicides, which is like, you know, it's there. And um, there, there is a problem, a limitation with regards to the security, the security strategy itself. It doesn't seem to be a concrete plan, and the National Guard does not have a concrete mandate. And this is where, where the problems are. I think that the confrontation against the cartels was perceived by a very important segment of the population as the cause itself of the very, it's very, very big increase in the number of homicides in the country. You know, the war on drugs itself, the military 
militarization of security strategy cause over 200,000, uh, I mean, people dead and 10,000, I mean, thousands of, uh, uh, of, of disappeared people, uh, doses of thousands of disappeared people. So I, I definitely think it's a, it's a failure to some extent, but not as some uh, groups or some analysts have, have posed, because we have to, you have to understand that the situation of Mexico is not just, um, you know, the result of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's um, strategy. However, it's his responsibility to address this issue. And in that regard, he has not been successful to address it properly. So uh, just a week ago, uh, Lopez Obrador said the country is at peace. It's being governed. There are no risks of instability. What do you make of that? Well, there is instability in the country. There are several states that are, you know, not controlled, but with a very strong presence of organized crime. And, you know, civil society is not safe in, in a number of municipalities in the, in the nation. You know, they, what happened, which is which was, was represented in the election, is that, you know, people could, were able to vote. They were able to express their their opinions they participated over 50 percent of the people voted you know there is instability yes but the country's out of control no which is true but of course the events that took place for example in baja california the heads that were thrown uh, there and some other violent incidents you know are the reflection of a violent country but not of a country out of control you know in a way he wants to say there's no problem which is an exaggeration but at the same time it would be exaggerated to say that mexico is a failed state so let's touch on Vice President Harris's trip to Guatemala at the moment and uh, Tuesday in Mexico meeting with President uh, López Obrador. She's not going to Honduras or El Salvador. I take it because the leaders there are just so manifestly corrupt she can't, you know, even be seen with them. At least that's an assumption on my part. Not that the leader of Guatemala is squeaky clean himself. So how is she doing? Because this is an incredibly difficult task that President Biden's given her to somehow make life more livable in the Northern Triangle country so that immigrants won't be forced to flee north to the U.S. border. I don't imagine he set her up to fail, but she's got quite a task in Guatemala. And then, if you don't mind, we'll also talk about what her task is in Mexico City. But let's start with Guatemala. Absolutely. I think, um, and this is important to, to consider, that the approach to irregular immigration, uh, I mean, the way that the Biden administration is dealing with this and the future plans, in my opinion, is very relevant. Addressing the root causes of undocumented immigration, having a close connection and, 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 and a, a, well, an attitude of collaboration, of cooperation more than pressure is very appropriate. And I, this is a way we have to think of. I think in that regard, yes, she's given, she's been given a very tough task to do, but I think she has the capacity to do that uh, because, you know, it seems that, that there is, is a mandate, she, she understands that and she might be able to do it 
pretty well. Of course, the, the biggest challenges here are the very high levels of corruption of these countries. But in that regard, there are also plans to address, you know, the, I mean, the causes of corruption and corruption itself by involving civil society, which is interesting. You know, I think the plan of the Biden administration is extremely relevant. And if it, if it is managed correctly, and if corruption is really eroded corruption is 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 fought appropriately i am sure things will will be better because definitely if we don't address root causes in the countries of origin where irregular immigration you know origins will not going to i mean there will be on the routes there will be a lot of um you know abuses and the vulnerability of people uh you know present them uh very very vulnerable to the presence of organized crime corrupt authorities in mexico which is where also, she's going to be trying to uh, to collaborate with with Mexico under I, I expect a different attitude and you know more of collaboration also in Mexico, uh, other than you know pressure and threats and and all that. So I think that she has a very important task to accomplish, but I think she's on the right track to do it. And in terms of Mexico, what is on the agenda with AMLO? Uh, well, I think that also the collaboration, there are different perspectives on that. And some in the country think that she will try to push Mexico in a, in a better way to do what Donald Trump would say, which is like to protect the southern border and to collaborate, not to to leave people to continue their, their, their journey to the north. Um, I believe that it's in the interest probably of those countries to address the, the root causes of irregular immigration, but let's see what happens in that regard. Another thing that allegedly, I mean, it's important for the United States is, is corruption in the Northern Triangle in Mexico and the presence of organized crime in Mexico. In that regard, I, I believe that, you know, having a, a core conversation a conversation of cooperation and also probably you know uh, you know recognizing uh, shared responsibilities and um, possibly an economic you know, economic help to Mexico. The, the president of Mexico has also the idea of developing the southern states of Mexico. And probably, you know, the United States and Mexico could come up with ways to develop also the southern part of Mexico in case some of the people uh, that cannot just like stay while waiting to for for their situation to be to be improved uh, that have to run because of the gangs will probably have better opportunities in Mexico. So I think the negotiation of this economic uh, package that can uh, that the United States can give to Mexico will be will be key will be very very key and as I said before even though some of the media outlets in the United States of the international media see this as a is a very big blow against Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador I I am not sure about that and Andres Manuel is still very very strong so uh, Kamala Harris is not going to face a president that 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 is Weak, and this is something important. So I think that there, are, there, are, there, are, there will be avenues of collaboration, but I think that the two countries have to give and take. Well, just in closing, uh, Guadalupe, we talked about the 96 candidates and politicians who have been murdered in this current campaign for the elections that just took place over the weekend, and 565 politicians or candidates were also targeted. So does that mean, we know who's probably targeting him, which is the criminal gangs. So does that mean that 
the people who actually get elected are the ones that the criminal gangs approve of. I mean, if you're being in attacked and intimidated by criminal gangs who are willing to shoot and murder brazenly uh, 96 candidates out of 565 that they've intimidated, doesn't that mean that the criminal gangs are deciding who gets elected in Mexico? I don't think so. I don't think so. The, I mean, the events that have taken place have to do with the dynamics that have been growing and that are a result of, of a process of a security strategy that has been uh, not correct and has, you know, incorporated also, you know, the processes of, of I mean, corrupt processes and, and, and corrupt authorities. Absolutely, there is a problem of security, of organized crime and corruption in Mexico. There's no, there's no question about that. But putting that in a sense to say, uh, you know, Mexico is driven. Mexican politicians are driven by, are driven by, by, by cartels. Is 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 not is not correct. Uh, as I said, 2018, we had more events of the ones that you that that you described, and this situation has not been addressed. No, it has not been addressed, and the and the Mexico Mexico's government needs to work on that. But I would say that there is an attempt of organized crime to have an impact on elections, and we need to be very careful about that. And definitely, I don't doubt and we know about the fact that uh, authorities at the highest levels of government in the in the in the sexenio of Felipe Calderón the strong man of security Genaro García Luna, the Secretary of Public Safety, was is arrested and it, 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 is, it is waiting for its trial in the United States for supposedly having, you know, received money from the Sinaloa cartel. And then uh, Salvador Cienfuegos, who was the, the also the other strong man in the, the next administration of Enrique Peña Nieto, was um, was considered uh, well, was considered was arrested in in the state of California in the United States for supposedly also for alleged for alleged links with the cartel. So therefore, there are definitely links. And what happened today uh, has a lot to do with situation in Mexico, with the connections of politicians, with the protection of organized crime by the politicians. But saying that this is like a characteristic of today's election, I, I want to think that there are some there there is some changes, and definitely we have to address these issues. But I don't believe that Mexico is a failed state; that it, that the state is driven by cartels. I want to think about that. I want to think that, but I'll 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 see I'll see. I mean, we'll we'll see, and we have to to keep an eye on on what is happening. And 2024 is 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 near. So uh, this is going to be the real referendum on this project that might have that will, might might have a future or might not, which is the project of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, his approach to security and his approach to the economy and his approach to the poor and the country. One thing that he has, uh, I mean, that he has, um, you know, put very clear is that, you know, he feels that, that the poor people are first. And this is why he has been able to keep his, his, his support, because the support is still very, very important in the country. And yes, we have to address the issue of, of, of insecurity, uh, the issue of organized crime. It's not minor what happened in this, in, this, in this electoral process, but it's not the end of Mexico. This is what, what, what we have to understand, too. Well, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, I thank you so much for joining us here today. 
Thank you very much, Ian. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking, a global fellow at the Wilson Center. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's office to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. The president of the Association for Borderland Studies, her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the incendiary and volatile politics in Israel as Prime Minister Netanyahu borrows from Trump, accusing the opposition government about to replace him of fraud. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gershom Gorenberg, who's a historian and journalist who has been covering Middle East affairs for more than 35 years, a columnist for The Washington Post and a senior correspondent for The American Prospect. His books include The Unmaking of Israel, The Accidental Empire, The End of Days, Shalom, Friend, The Life and Legacy of Yitzhak Rabin, winner of the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently, War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gershom Gorenberg. My pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And things are heating up in Israel to the point where it's pretty unprecedented that Israel's internal security, Shin Bet, its chief, had to go public and warn that, quote, Extremely violent and inciting discourse targeting lawmakers seeking to end uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's 12-year reign could take a potentially lethal form. So apparently already there's been demonstrators, nationalists, demonstrating in front of Naftali Bennett's house, etc. And they've had to put uh, Shin Bet bodyguards to protect Naftali Bennett. And I'm not sure about yeah, Lapid, but... This is pretty unprecedented, isn't it, that you have a situation where the outgoing prime minister is inciting violence and it requires the internal security people to issue an alert? Yes, it is unprecedented. There have been other times of extreme political tension in Israel uh, where uh, the public atmosphere got extremely intense and a couple of occasions in the past, uh, most uh, tragically and famously the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, where that led to violence. But I don't recall any other case of 
a prime minister essentially saying that for him to leave office is illegitimate and that the people who are uh, putting together a new government uh, according to the basic rules of Israeli democracy are are doing something illegitimate. Um, and that is the desperate uh, tactic that Netanyahu and his allies are using right now. And in particular, they are aiming their fury most strongly at the uh, at, at Naftali Bennett, the leader of the small uh, right-wing Yamina party who is slated to become the next prime minister, and at other members of his party because uh, they're trying to uh, at one time convince the public, that, uh, particularly the right-wing public, that this is that they've sold out their voters, that they've misrepresented themselves, and they're trying by doing that to put extreme pressure on the lawmakers from that party not to vote for the new government. Uh, in the process, there is a serious risk, as, as the head of the security service said, that they could give someone the idea that violence is justified to stop us, and that's very dangerous. Well, surely, Gershom, this echoes of what happened here in the United States on January the 6th with Donald Trump inciting the mob to storm the Capitol. Uh, there certainly seem to be echoes of it. Uh, I have to say that usually I resist comparisons, too close of comparisons between Israeli and American politics, both because the societies are so different and because the structure of politics is so different. But in this case, Netanyahu really seems to be cribbing lines from Trump. I mean, he, he has referred to Bennett siding with the new coalition, with the change coalition, as it's normally called here, as a form of election fraud. Now, now what he means by that is not what Trump claimed, that the votes were miscounted. What he means by that is that Bennett defrauded his voters by uh, saying that he'd support a right-wing government and now supporting the new across-the-board coalition, which by the way, Netanyahu falsely labels as being a left-wing coalition. But the rhetoric, calling it an election fraud, treating it as being illegitimate, that, that the democratic process could lead to him leaving office, that certainly looks like uh, consciously or subconsciously Trump taking lines directly from Donald Trump. Well, Netanyahu wrote on his Facebook page that Bennett, change government he compared it to the Torah story about spies Qu quote spies public representatives of the Israelites who defamed the land of Israel and weakened the people's spirit only out of concern for their personal jobs so um, <laughs> I don't know that seems like incitement to me well you know, using biblical verses to prove whatever point you, you want to make is, a, is an old game. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, Netanyahu's usual style, by the way, and even the, the, the posing as somebody who's so concerned about the Torah portion is, is if, if it weren't for the circumstances, would be uh, a, a good source of humor. But the, the bottom line there is that he's... A, He's describing these people as uh, as betraying their voters and at a certain level as betraying the country. Um, 
the idea that people who don't vote for me are treasonous to the state as a whole is absolute poison to a democracy. And that's what Netanyahu is doing right now. He has uh, gone all out on the idea that he is the state um, and is trying every desperate tactic he can to avoid losing power. And you mentioned earlier, Gershom Gorenberg, that the um, what's happening now with this uh, incitement and the need for internal security, Shin Bet, to protect Naftali Bennett and other I take other lawmakers in this new coalition government uh, that's being formed um, it, it, it is reminiscent of what happened with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, the former head of Shin Bet said that the current atmosphere reminds him of what happened just before Rabin's assassination. And to this day, Rabin's widow, uh, Leah Rabin, she... Well, Leah, I don't think she's still alive. So Leah Rabin, uh, the widow of uh, Yitzhak Rabin, always blamed Netanyahu for her husband's assassination. And he did attend rallies with far-right murderous people. uh, And a lot of his own... The good colleagues left the rallies because they thought it was too incendiary, but uh, Netanyahu stayed there. Um, and it seems like he's never really taken responsibility for incitement in his entire career. No, and I, I think that there's another factor here. Um, it's the nature of uh, this style of leadership that there is this... Um, intense relationship between the crowd and the leader and that the um, swelling feeling of the crowd inspires, uh, gives energy to, stokes the ego of the leader. So whereas other people back in the mid-90s, 1994, 1995, when this this fury was rising on the right against Rabin, other people at a certain point in the right said this has gone too far and walked out whereas as Netanyahu seemed to just uh, thrive on the adulation of the crowd and not notice the the danger he was creating and I'll, I'll add a point there um, the, the danger created by this is not one that vanishes uh, the day after a new government is sworn in, if it is indeed sworn in. Netanyahu is going to remain on the political scene. Uh, he is, by the way, going to remain on trial, something which he would like to divert the public's attention from. He is desperately trying to stay at the leadership of his Likud party. Uh, and therefore, the risk of him continuing to stir up this kind of trouble uh, remains. There's no reason to feel confident that the tension will will vanish just because a new government is is sworn in. So, I guess, though, in the overall picture here, this new government, if it indeed is going to form, and I guess Netanyahu's tactic at the moment, apart from inciting violence and causing internal security to have to protect uh, his political opponents... He's also trying to peel off people from Naftali Bennett's 
religious nationalist party and it, and the coalition that Naftali Bennett's put together is an extremely unlikely one with leftists uh, and the Arab uh, Islamist party, Ram, uh, along with Jewish nationalists and, of course, the biggest uh, contradiction of all is Naftali Bennett being a religious nationalist and his coalition partner, Lapid, being... Um, the kind of poster boy for Israeli secularism, didn't his party was really formed around secularism, wasn't it? Well, his party is, I would say, the voice of uh, of the Israeli um, uh, mostly secular middle class. The fact is, Lapid has always been very good. I think this is an aspect of Lapid's uh, political personality that is over often overlooked especially abroad, Lapid has always been very good at recruiting for his party members of the moderate wing of uh, the Orthodox society, the Orthodox community, the religious community in Israel. He's always had at least a couple of representatives on his parliamentary ticket who are religious and represent a much more moderate uh, view politically and religiously than the kind of people who have been in Bennett's party or parties further to the right. So he hasn't been a radical secularist, certainly not in the style of his late father, but he represents a different vision of the state, a much more secular uh, live and let live vision of the state. The coalition that has been created, by the way, hasn't really been created by Bennett. It's been created by Lapid. Lapid has been uh, the political mastermind behind putting this together um, and behind creating this incredibly unlikely and uh, sort of house of cards coalition, all in order to, to accomplish what he sees as the most pressing task, which is getting Netanyahu out of the prime minister's office. But Given that Lapid's party, which is its constituents are the centrist, as you mentioned, middle class, secular Jewish, uh, Israeli citizens, they want civil marriage, they want subsidized child care, and they want buses and transport, uh, public transport to run on Jewish holidays. So is that ever going to fly with Bennett and company? I think that the likelihood is that... This government is is extremely unlikely to make any significant changes in those kinds of issues on the religious secular status quo. What they are very likely to do is to pass a new draft law, a new conscription law, which will reduce the exemption given to the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox are not represented in the government. And Bennett has no problem with pushing for more of them to share the military burden or the national service burden as an alternative to military service. Uh, there could be changes made in the requirements for the ultra-Orthodox school system. But in terms of things like civil marriage or public transportation on, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, Basically, on all of these major issues, people have had to agree to a moratorium on the major policy issues facing the country uh, in order to 
create a coalition that can remove Netanyahu from power. Now, there is one thing that is written into this coalition agreement, which is very significant and, and is, uh, represents a change. The very fact of having a party backed by the Arab minority in the governing coalition and the moderate promises made to that party represent a significant change in Israeli politics, a positive change of political legitimation for those parties and inclusiveness. And Bennett, like it or not, has become has become party to that in order to gain his chance at the premiership. So that's one change that that certainly seems to be taking place out of this. So just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Gershom, it sounds this like... This is WMNF Tampa. Israel saying that this new 